when you are intubating an asthmatic, you have to think preemptively. Welcome back to PedScript. I'm Zach Hodges, a PICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin, a pediatric critical care fellow in Washington, D.C. So Alice, who do we have with us today? Today, we are bringing back Dr. Michaela White-Nesfield. She's one of my PICU attendings at Children's National in D.C., and she is here to talk about mechanical ventilation in asthma. That's right. This is part two of our two-part series on invasive mechanical ventilation in patients who have asthma. We can really get into the weeds of what to do when the patient who's been intubated for asthma doesn't respond to your initial interventions and has progressive respiratory failure. Talk about inhaled anesthetics, maybe the role of ECMO, and many other things. Yes, let's get right to the interview. So tell me this, you have that patient intubated asthmatic, they're getting a little bit better. Maybe you come into the bedside two or three times during the shift to do an inspiratory hold, and you notice mm. that maybe the gap between the, the plateau pressure and the peak pressure is narrowing. What does that tell you about the patient's physiology? Well, usually I don't do that, to be honest. But <laughs> if I did do that, it would tell me that the bronchospasm is getting better. The reason I say I don't usually do that is because a lot of times, if you're having that much of a change in your PIP to plateau difference, you're going to see it on your end title, right? Mm. You're going to see decreased shark finning. Or you're going to know when you look at your end title and your nurse tells you what your gas was, that you have less dead space ratio. And that's really just the difference between what you're getting on your end title and what you're getting from your blood. So those are the things that I tend to rely on. If I am concerned, however, that things are not going in the right way, that's usually when I would check another plateau pressure just to see what the difference is and if we're, we're having worsening that way. Because if you already have bad shark finning, you're not going to be able to tell if it just gets a little bit worse. You're still going to be horrible shark finning. And you may be able to see it in your gases, but it's definitely something that I would try on the bench just to see, okay, what's going on? Are we having worsening diffusion to the point where we're having issues with CO2 exchange? Or is this just worsening asthma? So we've talked about the ways that we've evaluated our plateau pressure and really adjusted those settings. Mm-hmm. When you read the textbook, they recommend maxing your peak pressure at 40, maxing your plateau pressure at 30, and then really being careful if you're starting to see an intrinsic PEEP creep above 15. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how you measure your intrinsic PEEP and how you interpret and use that number in your settings? Oh, of course. So usually the vent just gives you a PEEP like from breath to breath, right? However, if you really want to know your intrinsic PEEP or your auto PEEP is what most of us mm-hmm. call it, you need to do an expiratory hold, right? You can do an expiratory hold on the vent very similarly to how you would do an inspiratory hold. You hold until it gives you a number and usually it's less than the 30 seconds the vent tells you <laughs> to hold for. And that, that gives you, okay, what your PEEP is looking like. I will say from my practice, I do use PEEP with my asthmatics. Mm-hmm. There are various ways of doing things, and there are different thoughts regarding this. Some practitioners feel that, you know, you already have a ton of PEEP. Giving more PEEP is just making things worse, and they use zero PEEP on the ventilator. How I tend to think about this is if you already have this much PEEP, and it is still not helping open up those airways, this PEEP is really just from air being trapped in the lungs, right? And so... Maybe we need to give it some more distending pressure for the airways to open up a little bit better. 
And I do tend, if we have a really high PEEP, to go below the intrinsic PEEP, which is where people are like, oh, well, you're not really doing anything. But I do. And I think it's funny because what would somebody do if their zero PEEP was not working? Given PEEP. You'd increase your PEEP. Yeah. Right? So I'm just like, that's the classic training. Even with my adult colleagues, they tell me, they're like, okay, if we start with zero PEEP and it's not working, we're going to increase our PEEP. And then you have to be cautious also with this kiddo who has other issues, like his diffusion injury with his rhinoenter RSV, whatever. Yeah, I can't remember right. what he has now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he has some, some lightest. Yeah. And so you want to be able to make sure that when you break, you're not going to be at such a low peep that you're going to cause issues um, with his diffusion. And so that's how I think about it. I like to use peep. I do tend to look at my intrinsic peep. And if it's very high, I go below it. If it's below 14, then sometimes I will match it and see if that gives me any bang for my buck. What I would like to say is it's really important to remember the classic rule of medicine. You do something, you follow up to see what's happening, right? If you're doing a PEEP trial where you're increasing your PEEP and you're looking on the inhalation limb of your pressure volume loop, right, you're going to be like, okay, am I at my inflection point to see if you're going to get better air entry? Or am I not seeing any more increase in volumes for these higher pressures that I'm using? Yes. So to get back to our five-year-old intubated asthmatic, you've adjusted your settings to 40 over 12 with a rate of 12 and an eye time of 1.2. You repeat your inspiratory hole plateau pressure is still measuring safely at 29. Your nurse asks if you'd like to continue paralyzing this patient. Can you talk about whether sort of the benefits and risks of paralyzing an intubated asthmatic? I know that once you're applying PEEP, the patient's exhalation effort might assist in exhalation as opposed to in a person without any positive pressure, you sort of have effort-independent mm -hmm. exhalation. And I'm trying to parse mm -hmm. that apart in terms of best practices. Okay. So I do use paralytics. Once you've confirmed that your airway is in and it's stable, I do put them on a paralytic drip. And the reason is, if you think about how an asthmatic is breathing before they're paralyzed, compared to what you are doing on the vent, they are completely different ends of the spectrum. And so they're going to continue trying to breathe really fast and you're going to continue trying to slow their breath down so they can exhale and the two do not meet in the middle. Nice. And so that is why I, I paralyze so that I can completely take over. It also helps protect us from them trying to buck against the vent and causing more bar trauma to themselves and increasing their risk of air leak. And so for intubated asthmatic patients who are extremists, I definitely paralyze. Nice. And that makes sense. You don't take control of things. Right? Yeah. You, I mean, they already had a chance. They yeah. had a they chance. You right. gave them a chance. <laughs> <laughs> so let's continue this most unfortunate story for our patient. Okay. You got moderate, moderately okay ventilation on 40 over 12, rate of 12. Okay. You get tidal volumes four to five per kilo. Mm -hmm. You let this persist for a couple of hours, but still major respiratory acidosis. pH less than 7.2. CO2s are still above 70. You're still paralyzed. Tell me this, how do you think about incorporating inhaled anesthetics like isoflurane? What patients will make you want to do right. that? Which ones will you maybe not? And how do you achieve that? How do you do that? So I want to start by saying, I would not leave this kid on a PIP of 40. That's the first thing. But I would definitely increase it to get better tidal volumes. Okay. The second thing would be when I start thinking about ISO is when 
the kid first comes in, whether they came in on everything, that means included aminophilin, or we are prohibited from using certain things, like we talked about before, poor renal mm-hmm. vision, and I, I can do aminophilin, but not at the rate I would want to, mm-hmm. that kind of situation, then I definitely think about Sevora ISO. Depending on institutions, people use different ones. The other thing would be, you really have to think about where you are. Not everywhere can do inhaled anesthetics. And if you're at a place where they can't do inhaled anesthetics and they can't do ECMO, you should have been thinking about transfer already if your kid is still this sick. And so that's important for us to recognize our limitations of where we are, not personal limitations, limitations of the institution. Here, we're lucky enough to be able to offer inhaled anesthetics. And so if I have tried all of the things that we've talked about before, and we're still having issues like this, I will buffer the patient. So you can, I know people have different thoughts on giving bicarb. If we're in an extreme situation, where we're like six, eight, six, nine, I do buffer because I, at that point, I don't really care if it increases my CO2 a little bit. It's probably going to increase my pH much more than it's going to increase my CO2. Mm-hmm. And while I don't, I won't put them on a drip or anything. I just give them a little bit to buy me some time because things like epi does not work as well at these low pHs, right? And you want your epi to really be working or your turb to really be working for this kid then, of course, you want the kid to not be so acidotic that it causes issues with their cardiac Mm -hmm. function as well. So I know there's a lot of debate now that's saying, you know, kids do fine at low pHs and all that. Not for forever. And we do not have enough information on kids or pediatrics to tell me that they can just tolerate a 6.7 pH. We just don't. So I'm not comfortable doing that. And then I would call my anesthesiologist. They do, it takes time, right? They have to either bring up their vent or use one of the vents on the unit that is able. We are lucky enough to have one of our own. And then depending on how many times you've done this, there's usually a lot of debate running around about putting them on and how you do it and like who's going to be monitoring and all of that. And so you want to make sure you have all of those things in place because this does not come without risk for the patient or for the practitioners in the room, right? You need to make sure you have a filter, you're scavenging, all of that stuff before you just pop someone on ISO or SIBO. But again, it just comes down to, have you done all of the things? And are you still in an extremist position? Then yes, you need to try inhaled anesthetics. Excellent. As someone who hasn't done this practically at the bedside, Mm -hmm. how do you dose your inhaled anesthetics and how do you titrate? So that's usually anesthesia. Anesthesia. They will come up and they have different percentages. Usually they're talking about one Mac as their highest. And then I'm usually like, what's a Mac? And I go back into my book and I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 remember that (laughs) from from anesthesia. That's usually where they talk about that being pretty high. And they start increasing that. Usually we just go to that, right? You start at 0.5 and then you go to 1 because you're really just trying to get them broken from a bronchospasm perspective. And ISO should, ISO or SIVO should work pretty quickly. We have had the unfortunate circumstances sometimes where it just doesn't work quickly and you, you can't really tell, okay, did it get me to an okay position? Is it working a little bit? Or is it just like time and the methylpred and everything? And mm. I could, I should, could wean off because the thing that we're concerned about with inhaled anesthetics is they are used for a short period of time, right? You're in the OR, even if it's a 12 hour case, that's relatively short. And with a bronchospastic response, you should see a response within the first couple of hours. 
And if you're not seeing any response at all, you have to start thinking about whether or not the side effects is worse than than the treatment. And so some of the things that we think about is really apoptosis of neurons, right? That's the biggest risk to the patient for long term. And of course, the risk to the staff if your um, filter and your scavenger isn't working or something, but that shouldn't happen. And then the other thing would be, how do you get off, right? Usually our anesthesiologist colleagues, at least here and in other institutions that I've trained, they will come up every four hours if someone is not sitting at the bedside. And if someone is sitting at the bedside, it's usually a CRNA if you have that at your institution. The anesthesiologist attending will come up and will wean. I've seen as little as 0.1, usually 0.2 in terms of your max. And then you're going down slowly to see whether or not you have a response with continued bronchospasm, things get worse, things stay the same, similar as you would wean anything else. Nice. You sort of go from a MAC of 1 to a MAC of 0.8, mm-hmm. see how it goes. If tolerated, then your next step is yeah. from 0.8 to 0.6, something like that. And I feel totally comfortable saying my anesthesiology colleagues would like to correct me. I'm fine with that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> usually is- they're the ones doing it. <laughs> we'll put a pin in this and maybe invite an anesthesiologist on to talk I about know, they, it. I know. They're they are awesome. They're this experts. is their realm, right? So, this is yeah. what they do. Mm-hmm. All right. As this patient progresses, we talked about developing air leak, pneumothorax, pneumomediastinum, mm-hmm. subcutaneous air. How do you, in my mind, this is one of the things that really makes the team start to think about ECMO. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So air leak syndrome is just one of your criteria point blank because anything you're doing on the vent at these pressures is going to make it worse. And so then there's no point blowing up your lungs to try and better bronchospasm, right? And so definitely ECMO is thought about when you're starting to have significant air leak. And when you put someone on ECMO, the hope is that your bronchospasm will break. So you're hoping it's going to be a short run. And they have been short runs that are hours. I've seen like not even 24 hours. And then you come off because of the risk of ECMO. Yeah, it's usually short runs. Definitely a couple of days is is the norm, but I have seen really short runs where you just have your bronchospasm break and you're able to come off and why stay on ECMO and risk them having a bleed or something else Mm -hmm. if you're able to come off. So maybe the hard indications of severe air leak syndrome, anything else, maybe it's a little bit of a softer indication for ECMO in your practice that you would rely on? So yeah, if you have a kid that has a combined like ARDS picture, you I mean, we always have to talk about these kids, right? Mm -hmm. So you sometimes you may have to think about going on BV ECMO because you're not sure that even if you control the bronchospasm, if the ARDS is bad enough, if they're meeting criteria from that standpoint. And it's really hard to ventilate and oxygenate someone who has ARDS and asthma, right? They kind of just go against each other. Mm -hmm. And so that tends to push sometimes more than anything else. And then... I think those are the main ones that I think about when I think about what pushes me to ECMO. Mm. And this all goes without saying, but this is, of course, VV ECMO. We know yes. we do VA ECMO. Yes, for yes, 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 like yes. VV ECMO. Yeah. And then, of course, sometimes you don't have air leak. I should have said this, but if you think, okay, you have reversible bronchospasm, but you just can't get them to break. And you're worried that you're going to have their pH be in the toilet for forever and they're not going to be able to tolerate that. That's more of a like, okay, physician dependent type situation because there are some more experienced physicians who have been like, we've seen this. We've done this when there was no ECMO, when there was no isoflurane and, you know, time, 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 you buffer until they break. And there are physicians who would ascribe to that. 
because ECMO is a serious risk. There are times when, you know, you just cannot even get them to 7-0 and you're really concerned that, okay, this hypercarbia is going to have them pass <laughs> before you're able to break the bronchospasm. And that's definitely um, physician-dependent cutoff point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, asthma is so scary. It's so scary it that is. when they break, they usually break and everyone feels so much better about themselves oh, yeah. all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, oh, it's we're great like very scary and very rewarding <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, because you can actually help them. Yeah, definitely. Out of curiosity, mm-hmm. how are five-year-olds going to cannulate on the VV ECMO at your institution? Is this uh, IJ, single lumen, yes. dual lumen? Or, or IJ, well, dual lumen within, yes, IJ, within a single lumen. vessel. Just, yes, single, single <laughs> so that's how we're doing yeah. it here um, for the most part. It was weird. A while back during the pandemic or like a little bit before, there was like a shortage of tubes. Oh, gosh. Which was really scary. Yeah. And so there was a little bit of deviation then, but definitely we're not thinking open chest or anything like that. We're definitely thinking IG cannulation or VV. Interesting. Yeah. And now we're, it, it's interesting. I don't know um, how your institution does it, Zach, but there's been a lot of talk. We used to do these at the bedside, and there's been a lot of talk about moving it to the cath lab for more controlled positioning. Which, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, which is very helpful <laughs> for yeah. VV when you can really get that perfect positioning downstairs and then bring the kiddo back up mm, as opposed to fighting the flows. and then anesthesia would take care would take over that point right yeah anesthesia would take over when the kiddo goes downstairs yes i don't think we've done that yet we usually use like echo guidance to yeah confirm positioning that's how we, we do, do it, it now show. as well and then just with some new attendings and some difficulties that we've had recently even with guided echo it was just a thought that we're working on a protocol to make this something that's doable that's neat yeah. And it was interesting for me because I learned a lot of other institutions do it this way. And I did not know that at all. But a couple of my colleagues who came from other places were like, oh, yeah, we totally send them to the cath lab and they do it down there. So yeah. And if that gets you the flows you need more effectively, yeah. that's life saving. And then that's great. yeah, having saving a kid from having to go on VA for flows or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. It's really helpful. Just gotta get a little bit more eager about rolling that kid with a six nine pH I know. before the pick you. <laughs> I know, yeah. Maybe I'll I know. The but this job. is why you can buffer yep. in short periods of time. <laughs> <laughs> or attempt to buffer, I should say. Yep. <laughs> yes. We've we've had a lot of departmental conversations about bicarb recently. It, it's it it really is up for debate. And there's no hard, true, right answer, right? It it's mm-hmm. an art. And you have to make the best decision you can at that time for your patient based on what you think is going on. And so Alice knows we've had (laughs) recently some debates where people are like, I'm not giving back for anything. And I was like, you sure about that? Sure you want to make that statement? (laughs) Gotta be careful. Exactly. You You don't want to make that statement. There's lots of metabolic reasons that bicarb would be helpful. That's all we're saying. Yeah. So if we've been able to establish adequate ventilation, Mm -hmm. let the lungs heal without ECMO, Mm -hmm. Is there anything special about planning for this extubation? Usually depends. For this kid, yes. Again, we have to think about what else is going on with him, right? So he also has a virus that puts him at risk for other things. So you have to think about your extubation readiness in terms of your bronchospasm and also your lung parenchyma, right? Or your compliance that way. And so you want to make sure that this patient is... One, been broken for a little bit, not like, oh, they broke and I'm just going to pull the tube right now. Mm-hmm. Because with asthma, anything you do can send them right back into that severe bronchospasm. So you give them some time, make sure they're able to do pressure support trials on low pressures, 
Some people, including one of our colleagues that I love here, loves doing CPAP support trials, yeah. which I did before at other institutions too. And I think they're great because the PEEP is really all you need to get over the restriction of the tubing. And so making sure that they're able to do that without any pressure is a really good indication. Some people think about extubating to BiPAP. I think if you're really broken, there's no need for that. If you're concerned about your lungs and not your bronchospasm, then sure. But usually we're not extubating to BiPAP unless there's lots of other indications going on. And then what are you on, right? So have you been able to come down on your medications that you're using to control the bronchospasm? So you're not going to extubate someone on the crap ton of turb yeah. and, and um, obviously not on the anesthesia vent either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're going to want to make sure you're off all of those medications and that you're stable with just like your methylpred. And even if you have a little bit of albuterol, that's okay. But usually you like to see you're off the heavier things. Such great practical advice. I don't think it's that different. Yeah. yeah, it's not that different from things that you think about in general when you're ready to extubate someone. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Michaela Whitenesfield, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast today to talk about this low frequency, but certainly high risk clinical scenario. Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to add to our conversation today? If not, feel free to reinforce a couple key points. Yeah. So I just like to say, again, I'm sure your your audience is wider than just pick you people. Actually, I'm not sure. Is it? Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Great. So things that I want to say is that when you are intubating an asthmatic, you have to think preemptively, right? So some of the things we didn't talk about as much here is what's going to happen when you put that airway in. And what's going to happen is you're going to increase the intrathoracic pressure and you're at high risk of them arresting. You're at high risk of them not having any preload. So you want to make sure they're hydrated before, that you have the appropriate drugs should you need to rescue them, including code drugs, and that you have skilled practitioners with you who know how to ventilate an asthmatic. Because even bagging, like in our situation, could lead to bar trauma, could lead to increased intrathoracic pressure from air trapping. And so those are the things that you want to really think about when you're about to intubate. And then, of course, your vent management after you've intubated. Your medical management is usually known by most people, but aminophilin is not as readily available everywhere. And including the ability to monitor levels It's not as readily available. And so you have to think about that as well because there are real side effects that could be established. And as my wrap up, I would say understanding and preparation is key, right? So as we've been talking about before, you have to be proactive. So proactive mostly and reactive less, right? So, Mm -hmm. and then for asthma, the enemy of good is better. I'm sure everybody has heard this because as practitioners, we don't like to see a 7-2. Everybody's trying to fix it. Why is your CO2 still 80? And for an asthmatic, a severe asthmatic, a 7-2 is like saving grace for me. I'm like, oh, I've almost made it. We're in a better place. And this is where I can sit and wait, right? And wait, give the patient time. Patience is not something that comes readily or easily to especially PICU or ICU in general physicians. And we really have to think about when is the appropriate time that we can just wait and allow the patient the time they need to break their bronchospasm? All right. Michaela, thank you so much for joining us. These are fantastic. You're welcome. Programs. It was my pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. 
it should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. It's also worth noting that the views expressed during this episode by me, Zach, and our guests are our own and do not reflect the official position of our institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to help support the production of Pedscrit, you can find us on Venmo and Patreon. We've also had some light merch made in the form of Pedscrit laptop stickers. And if you include a mailing address with any contribution, we would be so excited to send you one. Thank you again for listening.